going to steal somebody's thing over here. I don't know where mine went. <laughs> wow. What a morning. So good. I'm listening to the worship team, and they're singing, the music team's singing. I'm thinking that's awesome. And then, you know, Barry gets up and does his thing, and I think that's awesome. And then Mark prays, and I think that's awesome. I think, and then they sing, and then that's even more awesome. And then I get up here, and i got to keep it ball rolling here somehow. So <laughs> bear with me. But... Uh, I just, uh, we're starting a new series this morning, and uh, it's on Ruth, the book of Ruth, four, four sermons in four weeks on the book of Ruth, and it's really not enough time, because um, it's such a deep and powerful book, and I hope uh, you had a chance to read it uh, before you got here today. Um, I'm going to read it, read the first chapter this morning as we get into it, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about why I love this book so much, and uh, the book of Ruth is short, and it's filled with drama, and it's filled with conflict, and there's friendship, and there's romance, and there's, there's tension, and the tension is resolved, and, and it's, it tells sort of a simple story about simple people uh, on the surface, but then it also contains within it the whole story of God's, um, story of God's commitment to us as people, and the whole story arc of God's work with mankind. And it contains one of the most pivotal moments in history, sort of tucked away in there, probably a top three moment in history. Uh, and uh, if you keep reading Ruth over and over and deeper and deeper, the text just seems to keep going deeper and deeper. And there's more and more truth revealed. So it seems like there's no bottom to, the, to, to this very simple text. And it's just four chapters. It's a simple story. And uh, it's presented in a form. It's a history because we have the genealogy of these, of these people. And uh, it's a history, but it's, it's told at about, it's written at about the time of King David, and it's told about the line that is going to come that results in King David. Okay, so that's sort of the end of the story. I'm giving away the ending. <laughs> it's the story of how we came to King David, and just as we, we lit this Advent candle in hope uh, that a line of kings would come through David that would ultimately end in Jesus. And that's the story of Ruth. And already you're thinking, really, is all that in Ruth? I didn't even know that was in Ruth. And there is a lot going on in Ruth. So it's, it's exciting for me to, to get into it with you because I just love the book of Ruth. And I apologize, I don't have PowerPoints because one of the things about Ruth, and, and especially in the Old Testament, Ruth is told as, a, as what's called an idyll. It's kind of a, a romantic, a poetic story, uh, which is a history. And it's told in a form where God is sort of painting in brushstrokes. And so... As I was doing PowerPoint, as I sort of worked on my sermon and was working through different PowerPoints with it, the more PowerPoint I did, the less it became like a painting and the more it became like a spreadsheet. And I don't want Ruth to be a spreadsheet this morning. I want Ruth to be a painting uh, because God is painting in this sort of big strokes and in these, these sort of lavish colors a picture of his work with his people, a, a, a picture of his work with the nation of Israel a picture of his work with mankind and a picture of his work specifically, as we'll see in this story, uh, with Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. And so that's a bit of an overview before I get into it. And uh, let's just pray. Father God, we give you thanks for your word. Give you thanks that we're able this morning to look into the book of Ruth. And uh, I just pray that um, as I preach and as I teach that I can paint uh, the pictures uh, that you would have people see that they would understand the depth of uh, the story uh, and the history 
that is in the book of Ruth and the depth of uh, your love uh, that is conveyed through these pages. And so, Father, just uh, give us a, a quiet hearts and open eyes and ears and your Holy Spirit uh, to just take these words and penetrate uh, our hearts and lives with them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the book of Ruth, uh, if you're looking for it, comes after Judges and um, just before Samuel. And uh, it's sort of this little in-between book. And in Judges, what you have is these stories of sort of the epic, uh, you know, you've got uh, Samson and you've got Gideon and you've got Deborah and you have these sort of epic heroes of the Bible, right? That's where you get all your hero stories is in Judges. And so the camera, so to speak, is sort of in Judges on these sort of big political movers and shakers, these giants of the Old Testament um, like Samson and Gideon and, and, um, and people like that. And so the book of Judges ends and the last sentence in the book of Judges is that there was no king in Israel, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. That's how Judges ends. So there's been this series of generally 40-year periods where judges would rule 20 to 40 years each, and there were these sort of huge political moves and shakes, and, and it was the, the, the camera, so to speak, was on these big sort of pictures of, of what's going on in the nation of, of Israel, all the royalty, all sort of the, you know, the Stephen Harpers and the, you know, the Barack Obamas and the you know, the Justin Trudeau's, like all the bigwigs, it's following them through. And, and, and Israel ends up in a place where there's no king and everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Then we get to Ruth. And all of a sudden, the camera moves and the camera changes. In Ruth, the camera comes down to Bethlehem. It comes down to this family that nobody's heard of, just this guy and his wife, who end up running away, and you're sort of following the story. It's like, what is this about? Like, what is going on? Like, who are these people, and why do we care? And so in Ruth, you have this little four-chapter story about the little people, but about what God is planning for the nation of Israel, that God has not taken his eyes off of what is needed in Israel. God has not taken his eyes off of what is needed for mankind, and he has a plan He has a plan for saving Israel from themselves. And he has a plan for establishing a line of kings. Ruth 1. So just, uh, if you want to follow along, you can turn to it in your Bibles. This is my Bible. Whatever Bible you have, turn to it. There's a Bible in front of you, in the pew, or the seat back. Ruth chapter 1. I'm just going to read through it. And if you don't have a Bible, or if you just want to close your eyes, just follow along to what's happening in the story here. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. 
And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returning from the country of Moab, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So that's chapter one of Ruth. What is going on here? It's the days that the judges ruled, as I mentioned, and uh, it's a time when there was big movers and shakers in Israel, but that's not what Israel needed. And in fact, there was a famine in the land that God had, God's patience with his children had sort of run out, and he was disciplining them. And so there was this famine going on, and Elimelech and and, uh, Naomi and their two sons, they lived in Bethlehem, which is ironically Bethlehem. The name of the town Bethlehem means place of bread or house of bread. So it's a bad bad famine if even in Bethlehem you can't get a loaf of bread. And uh, and Elimelech goes to Moab. Now Elimelech's name is, is God is king or God is my king. So it's a man with the right name, but not necessarily doing the right thing. He doesn't really live up to his name. Instead of being obedient to his king, to God, which he's named after, he goes and he flees to Moab. So he tries to run out from the discipline of God. He tries to run out of the famine. He tries to move out of Judah. He, tries to, he moves away from his people, and he goes to Moab, which is a place that no Israelite should ever find themselves. I don't know if you know too much about Moab, but it's very important here that it's Elimelech and that he's going to Moab because Moab are descendant of Lot's daughters, 
It was a very sordid affair which led to the birth of Moab, <laughs> which we won't get into. Uh, but Lot and his daughters end up, and anyway, you get Moabites. And, uh, so, and the Moabites were always, always, always the enemy of Israel. Okay, it was Moabites, it was the king of Moab who got Balaam, the sorcerer Balaam, to put curses on Israel, right? And then God, you know, spoke to Balaam through the talking donkey and stuff. You remember that story? Well, those are the Moabites, okay? The Moabites are the last, Moab is the last place that any Israelite should find themselves. And yet here we have Elimelech fleeing from Bethlehem and going to Moab to sojourn there. And not only that, beyond that, that they remained there that he was hoping to get away from this, and he ends up dying in Moab. So we may think that we can get away from whatever God has planned for us, but it doesn't matter where you go, right? Our days are numbered wherever we are, and God's plan for Elimelech's life is God's plan for Elimelech's life wherever he tries to take it. And so he ends up dying, not in his home country, but he dies in Moab. And his two sons marry in Moab. They actually take Moabite wives. They're forbidden from taking... Israelite is forbidden from taking Moabite wives. Okay, if you go back to Deuteronomy 23, God says that you're not to have Moabite wives. And these two sons, they take Moabite lives, wives. And their, and their names are interesting too. Uh, Malon means uh, sick, and Kilion means weak. <laughs> and so you have these weak and sickly sons who take Moabite wives... And then they end up dying as well. And so now you're left with Naomi. And she has had to go with her husband into a country that I don't think she really wanted to go to. But she had to follow her husband. And she's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She's been there 10 years in Moab. Okay? In a place that she knows she's not supposed to be. And the first hope of Naomi is Naomi's hope in a true God. And as we sort of read through that chapter, and hopefully you picked up on it, we see that the first hope of Naomi is that despite her suffering, she still has a hope in God that I'm not sure that she even realizes she has herself, but it's present. Her hope is present in her faith. It's present in her seeking after God after 10 years in Moab and and setting out, deciding to set out on a long, difficult journey back to Judah, back to Bethlehem, because she believes in God, and she believes after all these years of where she's supposed to be, which is in Judah and under the hand of God, not in Moab. And so she leaves all of that behind, and she turns, and she goes, and she starts heading to Judah, and she says that she's bitter. Bitter is the graphic word here that's used by Naomi to describe her circumstances, and as she makes her journey back, three times she says she's bitter. She says, no, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Don't call me Naomi, she says at the end of the chapter. Don't call me Naomi, and her name means pleasant. Okay, So Naomi means pleasant, Mrs. Pleasant. And so she comes back, and all the women in Bethlehem are saying, oh, it's Mrs. Pleasant, she's returned. And she says, don't call me Mrs. Pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. And say, Naomi has this this sense that the Lord is against her, that she knows she's in a place of disobedience, that she needs to return, that her life is difficult because of the actions that she's taken, and she's burdened under this sorrow. But in the midst of this sorrow, there's still the hope of Judah. There's still the hope of Bethlehem. There's still the hope of returning to Israel. There's still the hope of returning to her God. She has not turned her back on God. And she may not feel like she has any hope here, but the very fact that she is making that journey back to Judah 
tells us the hope that she has in God. And that's going to be important for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And maybe you're in the same place today, right? Maybe you're under that same suffering of Naomi. Lost a husband, lost sons, financial difficulty, marriage breaking up. You're not even sure if you have any hope left in God yourself today, but you're here. You're here in this church listening to the word of God. That's not an accident. That's a sign of the hope that still remains, that there is always hope in God as long as you are seeking and returning to him, that no matter how long you've spent in Moab, you may have spent time in places that you should never have been and spent way too long in those places, but you turn from Moab and you go back to Judah. God is there, and that is the first piece of your hope, is that you're seeking and that you're traveling and that God is there. And that's no accident that you're sitting here in this church, that you're seeking to see if, if is God at work somewhere. Can I get something from his word? Can I mix and mingle with people where I can see God working because I want to have the hope that they have? And that's where Naomi is at. Naomi has her hope in God. Her hope begins with, I will just return to where I should never have left and see what God does with me there. It's actually then from there for Ruth as she begins this journey back she's you can picture her and her two daughters as they're sort of walking back on this long road it's going to take them weeks to get back to Israel to Judah the land around Jerusalem and uh, the two daughter-in-laws are are with her and it's a very pivotal moment in history when you think about it because I've told you how this ends right this ends with a line of kings ultimately David right David becoming king, and from David, ultimately, a line of kings to Jesus. And so, at this point, you can picture this sort of dusty road between Moab and Judah, and they're traveling back, probably the southern route around the sea, and they're traveling back to Judah, and there's this confrontation where the the two daughter-in-laws have to decide what they're going to do. And what strikes us when we read those verses, when we read about Ruth and Orpah and uh, their conversation with Naomi were usually, you know, struck by the faithfulness of Ruth, right? Ruth's response in her faithfulness to Naomi. And it's sort of this beautiful covenant language that she breaks out into where she talks about how, you know, your people will be my people and your God will be my God and I'll be buried with you and nothing but death will separate me. And she uses this amazing covenantal language with Naomi to show that her heart is committed to the God of Naomi, that she's committed to become a citizen of a new nation. And it's an incredible choice that she makes because there is nothing for her, as Naomi is very clear to point out, there's nothing for her in Judah. She's a Moabite widow, a woman, a woman Moabite widow in a foreign country. There's nothing there for her. And there's, Naomi doesn't have any family that she's aware of. There's nothing that Naomi is going back for. She's not wealthy. She has nothing that she's going back for. And Ruth makes this amazing commitment to Naomi. But what interests us, what interests me today is not even so much Ruth's decision as it is Naomi's faith. What's interesting here is the example of Naomi's life and speech and the little picture of the world that we have in Ruth and Orpah. When you think about it, you realize that Ruth doesn't know anything about God except what she knows from Naomi. Okay, Naomi's been there 10 years. They've been married, they were daughter-in-law, mother-in-law for 10 years. 
And everything that Ruth knows about God, she knows from Naomi. And so whatever happened that caused them to flee, whatever Elimelech was doing, whatever the, the sons believed, Naomi, we know, remained faithful to God to return after her family was gone. And what Ruth saw over those 10 years was the faithfulness of Naomi in spite of losing her husband, in spite of losing two sons, in spite of her land being in famine, in spite of you know, being in the land of Moab where she didn't want to be. There had to be something about the faith of Naomi that was attractive to Ruth. And what would it be? What was it about the faith of Naomi that was attractive to Ruth? And I think it was exactly that fact that Naomi had hope in her suffering. That Naomi hoped in God above all and everything else. Okay? The only information that Ruth has about God and the only example that she has of God is hardship and suffering. The only thing she has seen the God of the Israelites do for her mother-in-law is take away her husband, take away her two sons, have a famine in her land that drove her out, and yet Naomi is here returning to that God. And so Ruth and Orpah have seen this faith, they've seen Naomi live it out, they've seen the action Naomi is doing to return and despite this, what seemed, would seem to us today a terrible sales pitch, <laughs> Ruth commits to Naomi and commits to Naomi's God. She has a conversion experience here. This covenantal language is her committing herself to citizenship in Israel. It's committing herself to the God of Naomi. It's committing herself to a new family. Now, Orpah doesn't re- respond that way. Ruth says, your people are my people and your God is my God. Ruth has faith. And the faith of, is, of, of Naomi is attractive to Ruth somehow, but not to Orpah. Naomi paints this bleak picture of them in Judah. There's going to be no husbands. It's just going to be old age. I don't have anybody for you to marry. It's just going to be widowhood and death. And yet Ruth responds. Now, what does that mean for us today as Christians in the church? When I read that, I realize, and this is what I was guilty of, especially when I was younger, is I felt like I had to sell Christianity. I felt like somehow we had to compete with the world and market the church and market God to compete with all the commercials that are out there that are selling happiness and that you can get that same happiness and that same enjoyment and you can get that same success in the church. And so you want your friends to become Christians and so you say, oh, come to Jesus, you know, you'll, you know, you'll get rid of your drug habit or you, you know, your, your marriage will be fixed or your kids will come back, you know, they'll let them out of jail and, you know... Everything's going to go great if you just come to Jesus. Your whole life turns out perfect. You know, it's like, it was like a Super Bowl commercial. You know, look how great your life could be if you just wore Calvin Klein perfume, right? Or look how great your life could be if you just, you know, drove an Escalade or whatever. Like, we, you get into this trap where you think that the message of God is somehow a message of drawing people into this sort of, you know, we're going to fix everything in your life and you try to market God. That's what I tried to do. I tell my friends, oh, everything's so much better with Jesus. And it is so much better with Jesus, but not in that way, right? The happiness that the world seeks is in this sort of surface stuff. The world thinks that happiness comes from the circumstances that you're in or the stuff that you have, right? That if we just have the right kind of stuff or we're just in the right kind of circumstance, then I'm going to be happy. And yet, with all the sociology and psychology and self-medication and and, uh, you know, drugs that we have and everything else, are we any better at being happy today than people were 4,000 years ago? I don't think so. In fact, I think we're probably worse at being happy. 
Because what God teaches us and what Scripture tells us over and over and over again in multiple different ways is that happiness is not based on our circumstances. Happiness is not based on the stuff that we have. The issue of human happiness, of human joy, of human fulfillment is of much more spiritual and cosmic and profound significance than the circumstances you're in and the stuff that you have. And that's the message of Naomi. The message that I get as a believer here is that I have to live out, it's the hope in an authentic and transparent faith. It's the hope that I can have that if I simply live out my life authentically and sincerely and transparently before people, that that will be attractive to them. That it doesn't have to be glitter, it doesn't have to be gloss, it doesn't have to be a sales job. I don't have to sell the message that God has. The more powerful message that I have is the message of Naomi. That despite the fact that my life is hard, despite the fact that I have struggles, despite the fact that I go through difficulty, I remain faithful knowing that God is my ultimate hope, that my joy and happiness and salvation is in God ultimately, not in the circumstances of my life or in the stuff that I happen to have. So as my coworkers and my neighbors look at my life and look at our life as Christians, the better sell job for them is to see you in your struggles, and yet you remain faithful to God. To see that your kids are in jail, and yet you're faithful. To see that you are stricken with cancer, or your family is stricken with cancer, and yet you remain faithful. To see that you lose your job, or your house burns down, and yet you remain faithful. And you'll be talking to your neighbor over the back fence, and they'll be saying, you know, you've been living here for six or seven years, and I've been watching you, and you've been talking about Jesus, and your life sucks. You know, you got fired, you know, your wife got cancer, your kids are in jail, you know, you got a speeding ticket the other day, your dog died. Why do you follow this God? He does nothing good for you. That's when it opens up the real conversation. When you can say, you know what, you're looking at the wrong thing. It's not the stuff in my life that gives me joy. It's not the circumstances in my life. It's not my car, my house. It's not even my health that gives me joy. You're asking the right question. Why do I have faith in this God? Because he is millions of times bigger than all this little stuff that's going on. My joy and security is not in the circumstances of the things of my life. My joy, like Naomi's, and my hope, like Naomi's, is in things that even if I am going back a widow to a country that will, I have no family and know nothing, that's where my God is, that's where I need to be. And that's what Ruth saw. I think that's what Ruth saw, and Orpah didn't. Orpah said, I can't do it. I've got to go back to my family. I've got to go back to all my different gods. I've got to go back to all my stuff. I'm going to go back where I know there's food on the table, where there's lots of young guys I can marry. I'm going back there. I can't deal with this thing here. I don't, Orpah didn't have that same hope. But Ruth saw it in Naomi. Ruth saw something in Naomi that was profound. That on the surface, there was no reason for Ruth to follow Naomi. And yet she did. And that, to me, is the hope in the authentic faith and a sincere faith. It says in Second uh, Corinthians 2.15 that not everybody is going to respond to that kind of transparent witness and that kind of transparent testimony. But it's the only kind of testimony that we can have as Christians. It says in Second Corinthians 2 For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. 
So when we are this transparent testimony, some people will be like Orpah, and they will be, it will be an aroma of death to them, and they will run from it. And to others, it will be an aroma of life, like to Ruth, and they will cling to it. But listen to what Paul says about being this testimony, this pure, sincere testimony like Naomi's. Who is sufficient for this thing, for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So right there, Paul says, we're not trying to sell the gospel. We're not peddling the gospel. We're living out this authentic life in front of people. And some people, it's going to be the aroma of death. And to other people, it's going to be the aroma of life. But we're not going to compromise our testimony to try to sell the gospel or paint it in some kind of marketing light or try to make it look better than it is like a Calvin Klein ad or a, you know, a Ram truck ad. We're not peddlers of God's word, but we're men of sincerity. It's a sincere, authentic faith that we can have hope in as Christians. That if we just live out our life transparently and authentically, God will call the people to him that he intends to call. And so I can tell you that this sort of testimony is going to prompt a more sincere and interesting conversation as we talked about with your neighbors. Your neighbors are going to say, I've been here a while, I've seen you, I've seen your life, and yet you still believe. I haven't seen anybody like that. I've got to have what that is. Whatever that is, that's what I'm looking for. I've seen people believe in a lot of things and change from one thing to the next. You know, one time they're doing Kabbalah, and the next thing they're doing crystals, and then they're doing this and yoga, and that's not working. And they keep changing, and nothing seems to work for them. But you stick with it. No matter what happens in your life, you have the same hope every year. What is it you got? That's the more interesting conversation you can have with your neighbors. So don't try to sugarcoat the gospel. Don't try to make it look better than it is. Don't try to do anything other than live your life authentically before the world. Naomi's returning to Judah with nothing but God. Her daughters can stay in Moab and have everything but not have God. And Ruth would rather have God than everything else. And so they return. In Hebrews 11, it talks about these people of faith. It says that if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out of, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's what it says in Hebrews. And what the writer of Hebrews is writing about there, he's writing about the nation of Israel, but he's writing about those people who had been thinking about a land from which they had gone out of. That was Orpah was doing. Orpah was thinking about the land of which she was coming from, and she was thinking, man, I had all this stuff back there. I had all this family, all these things that you know, were better for me. And she got drawn back into it. But the people of faith, if they had been thinking about the land from which they had gone out of, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country. Ruth desired a better country. We as Christians desire a better country. We know that the, the famine and the floods and the tornadoes and the disease and the sickness and the death of our husband and the death of our sons and all the stuff that's going on that Naomi has experienced and all the stuff that we experience in this country, we know that this is not the country that we're citizens of. We desire a better country. We get it that we're living in Moab right now as Christians. We're living in a fallen, cursed world where lots of bad stuff happens. But this is not the country that we're citizens of. We desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called our God. So the second hope is a hope in an authentic faith. And thirdly, it's a hope in the harvest. 
a hope that is not misplaced. When Naomi and Ruth, Orpah goes back, and uh, when Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, all the women sort of go, wow, is this Naomi returning after all these years? And, uh, you know, she goes through her thing here where she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. The third hope here is in the hope of the sovereignty and the provision of God. All that Naomi can see right now is that she's empty, that she doesn't have anything, that everything that she did have has been taken away, that she has had nothing but misfortune, and she rightly ascribes it to God, that God has, in, is sovereign and in control of everything, that nothing happened to Naomi that God was not aware of, that nothing happens to Israel that God was not aware of, that whatever was happening to Israel, whatever was happening to Naomi and Elimelech and their family was all within God's sovereignty and God's power. And so all that Naomi can see is that she, was, she went away full and she's come back empty, that she has nothing. She thinks she has nothing, but what she doesn't see and what we see as the story unfolds as to why the camera zoomed in here on this little family from Bethlehem that went away to, ran away to Moab for 10 years and now a faithful wife is returning. What we see is that God is working something far bigger than what Naomi can understand. Naomi thinks right now that she's empty. But God is working things to make her the mother of the line of kings of David. And Naomi doesn't even realize that. She thinks she's just coming back to Israel empty, beaten up, nothing but grief and bitterness and sorrow. And so the narrator of the story sort of hints at this with the final words of the chapter. The final words of chapter 1 are that Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. There's a little foreshadowing for you. Okay, God's painting this picture. He's, he's writing this story to tell us something about what he is doing to work in the lives of Israel, about what he is doing to work in the lives of Naomi and Ruth what he is doing to work in our lives. That as we have this sincere faith, despite the suffering that Naomi had, that as we return from the places we know we shouldn't have been and we return back to God to where we should be, that even as Naomi is coming back to Bethlehem, this place of famine, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. There is this foreshadow of abundance that is coming. That God has something planned that is beyond the emptiness that Naomi can imagine. It's beyond all of that. It's to fill her up beyond overflowing. And it's just that simple little picture of the beginning of barley harvest that gives us that foreshadowing of what is to come. Because with a place that was a place of famine is about to become a place of plenty. And although Naomi didn't know it, God had sent uh, basically the news that had prompted her return and he was about to replace her emptiness with fullness. And so that's what you look forward to in the chapters to come. Naomi's hope is going to blossom into a joy and a peace and a love that she can't imagine. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to be encouraged by Naomi that 
Naomi was absolutely truthful about the circumstances of her life. That absolutely in the midst of suffering, she was nothing but transparent and sincere. That she knew the the source of suffering. That she knew that she was determined to believe and remain faithful no matter what. And that sort of faith will amaze people. And that will cause people to say, wow, that's different. That will cause people to understand that there is a hope in something far more profound than just the circumstances of our life and just the stuff that we happen to have accumulated around us. That there is a deep and profound hope that goes beyond those things. And that's the hope that we have in God. It's the hope of an authentic faith, a faith that's secure by the power and the sovereignty of God. That despite the fact that we may have gone to Moab, despite the fact that we maybe have wandered down paths and roads and spent time in nations that we never should have spent time in, there is a hope in our returning to God that he is faithful. That when we return to God, it's always the beginning of the barley harvest. It's always the beginning of a time of fruitfulness for us when we return to God. God's just waiting for us to come back. Let's pray. Father God, as we go into communion now, we have this opportunity to celebrate the hope that we have in you. That Naomi thought she was empty. That Naomi thought that there was nothing for her. But through Ruth, you are going to begin a line of descendants that lead to David, and from David, a line of descendants that lead to Jesus. And we are going to have this bitter widow woman filled up beyond what she can imagine. And we're going to have this faithful Moabite woman become an ancestor of Jesus. And so, Father, we can't imagine how you work. Father, I just pray that as we come to communion now, we examine our own lives. And we may have bitterness. We know we have bitterness and sorrow and hurt and heartache. And it seems in seasons of our life that there's a famine in our land, that we are bitter, that we are empty, that there is nothing for us. But Father, while the camera may be on the big epic things that are going on in the world, and the camera may be on big epic things that are going on in our life, back in the background in a little town of Bethlehem, there's this little family and a widow woman eventually that's going to change the line of kings and change the world. So, Father, we know this is how you work. So we know that in our life, we may feel bitter, we may feel empty, we may feel put upon, that your hand is against us. But in our life, we must remain faithful to the fact that you're sovereign, that, God, you are working, maybe not where the camera is pointed or where we have our camera pointed, but you're working behind the scenes to transform our lives in ways that we can't imagine. And that out of nowhere there's going to be a redemption that we're not expecting. Father, that's the faith that we have. And that's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That's the hope of a baby in a manger. That there is, coming out of Bethlehem, a totally unexpected redemption. A little baby is going to change the world. So, Father, I pray for that for us as we come into communion. That we would have that same hope. That we would examine our lives that we would set aside, even for a moment, the bitterness and emptiness and hurt that we may have and put our faith and hope firmly in you, that you are going to do something in your sovereignty and providence that's beyond what we can understand. Father, I thank you that this is how you work. Thank you that this is your love for us, that despite ourselves, 
you make plans years down the road to take care of us that we didn't expect. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.